Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We have got a great show for you today as 2019 starts to wind down and the pros scatter around the globe. We're thrilled to have our first international man of mystery, star of tennis, and the screen. The first professional athlete in the history of his country, which, it should be noted, is one of the biggest countries in the world. In a career that spanned two decades, BJ Amitraj posted wins over world number ones like Laver, Rosewall, McEnroe, Borg, and Connors. With his brother Anand, he led India to two Davis Cup finals, helping to make Amitraj a household name across India and the world. The great Vijay Amitraj is going to tell us how he came to America with $8 in his pocket and ended up with more Rolexes than he can count. What it's like to act at Pinewood Studios in the morning and play at Wimbledon in the afternoon. And share the inside story of the origin of Brad Gilbert's phantom let court obsession. We met up with VJ in Flushing Meadows as a crowd gathered to get a glimpse of the icon with the perfectly fitted suit and glowing personality. This iconic episode is being brought to you by Sergio Tacchini, the official apparel sponsor of Under Review. First of all, wow, listen, I mean, we are at the U.S. Open. We are in the media garden. I mean, how many U.S. Opens must this be for you? Have you been to 50 U.S. Opens? Well, it looks like it because this Wimbledon was my 50th consecutive Wimbledon uh, this 2019. So how much? So you gotta so at least be fifty. US opens. I must be up in the forties for sure. At least. Yes. Uh, gentlemen, uh, you hear with the smoothest voice there is, is the first professional Indian athlete in the history of India, and the great tennis player, Vijay Amitraj. Um, thank you for coming on our show. Thank you, Craig. Great to be here. Your son Prakash teed this up for us and we had him on our show in London at the London Masters. Great. First of all, we just gotta ask you, I mean, what's, what are your feelings about all this muscle building he's doing? <laughs> I mean, his muscle building is incredible. Well, I mean, I don't think, so. I say this very often about other people, but I hate it that he looks better than me. He looks incredible, he looks like Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> he does, I he, looks he looks like The Rock. Like The Indian Rock, Yes. that's what I told him. You don't think he's out of control with it? You think it's it's okay? Well, he seems to control it very well because, uh, you know, it's one good thing to be able to look good with your clothes off, but you got to look good with your clothes on. I think he looks good in both. He does. Spectacular. We do a five-set format. Our first set, we call it the Off the Court Report. Now, I know that your mother passed earlier this year. I know that you know she was really the pillar of your family. Um, that must have been a tough moment. Yes, I mean, uh, she was 92, so she had a, it's absolutely a full life. My entire life was uh, literally directed by her. Uh, I always say my greatest talent was being born to the right parents. And I was very fortunate to have had a mother like that who not just helped, but went to school for me when I was not well, 
as a youngster, put me into tennis when I couldn't play, couldn't run from A to B, did anything and everything that you could possibly imagine and then some, which is really not called upon for a parent to do, to be able to give me the life I'm leading today. We're going to talk more about how you came up in, in India and in tennis uh, later on in our show. But so I, I assume you went home to take care of business with the family. Um, and you have a very vigorous life in, still in tennis. What did you do? You, I, I assume you went to India and then you had a lot of different commitments. Yes, I'm, uh, I also serve as a brand ambassador for a few companies that I'm very proud of my association with them. I've been with Rolex quite a, quite a long time. I mean, you gotta be one of the original Rolex yes, contracts. which is wonderful and... Uh, how many just, Rolex uh, do you own? Uh, 20. If I knew how many I owned, I wouldn't be owning very much. <laughs> but on the other hand, I wear them for different occasions and uh, uh, it's very special to me, but especially the very first one that I won at Newport in the Hall of Fame tournament way back when. I'm also a brand ambassador for MasterCard and Aston Martin. And so I work with a couple of really good brands. Do you drive an Aston Martin? I do. How many Aston Martins do you have? Uh, I'm trying to keep one on the road at the moment. Vijay Amitraj, incredible. Rolex and Aston Martin. And, and what clothes did you wear when you played? Slazenger from the very beginning. You were a Slazenger contract? Right now I'm wearing Fila uh, uh, pretty much for the last, I'd say for the last 10 years. But I enjoyed each of them at moments in time that I was fortunate to play with. But now, so you, I assume you went to Wimbledon and you have those sponsor obligations. Yeah. And television, of course. Who do you yeah, broadcast This year for? I did for Fox Sports Asia and BBC. I did both. Broadcasting the matches? Yes. Oh, so you're busy. Yes. Every Which, day. Every day. And, uh, and of course, my, uh, my Rolex uh, clientele. Uh, that I deal with when I'm there. This was my 50th Wimbledon, which was quite unique. Wimbledon ends, what do you do next? I've been on the road for quite a bit now since Wimbledon and uh, doing events for my various brands. And uh, for the first time, my wife and I were also able to take a week and uh, do something which was always been on my bucket list, which was do an African safari for a week, which was quite out of the ordinary. Incredible. A lot of fun. What was the most interesting thing that you saw on the safari? I think the closeness to nature and the animals. You're actually right next to a lion, you're right next to a cheetah, you're right next to an elephant. It's all right almost within touching distance with, uh, within the open jeep. And you were in Tanzania, is that right? In Kenya. Really wonderful, magnificent resort called Finch Hattons in the Sabo National Park. That's an incredible trip. Yes, it was. And are you, and are, and are you just back to the States? Is that, is that I came straight back from Kenya to India to Hong Kong to here, to New York. And here we are. Yes. Yes, exactly. Unbelievable. So it's really uh, been quite a, quite a trip. Well, Stan Smith's September has come to a close, and we wanted to thank all of our new patrons. We really appreciate your joining the Under Review family and are tickled by your response to the Stan Smith episode. We were truly lucky to speak with him. And while we're on the subject of luck, congratulations to subscriber Helen McCusker, who won the Stan Smith giveaway. A pair of size 7 stands are on their way to you. To our other patrons, thank you for participating, and don't worry, there are more giveaways in the future. 
If you are bummed to have missed out on Stan Smith's September, lace up those shoes and get back on the court. We are thrilled to announce our initiative for October. An initiative nearly equal in alliteration to Stan Smith's September, it's Amitrage October. That's right, in celebration of this episode with VJ and my latest Racket Magazine article featuring Anand, we are officially celebrating Amitrage October. Like Stan Smith's September, there are giveaways and stay tuned to hear about that. But for now, let's get back to my interview with VJ Amitrage. Let's go into our second set. This is what we call our on-the-court report. I have to tell you, I didn't realize that you were doing broadcasting. Um, that leads me to believe you must keep your eye on the sport very closely. Fairly, fairly, fairly closely, closely, yes. Yes, I like watching the new youngsters come along, and I like watching the older guys on the tour hold on to their spots very cleverly, which is incredible how they do it. And uh, it's wonderful to see both, the, the champion have, and the challenger. Do you have any, um, and, and do you keep your eye on the women as well? Absolutely. But first of all, I'd like to draw the comparison between the fact that in the men's section of the draw, you have a 38-year-old looking for his 21st major, and then in the women's section of the draw, you have a 15-year-old trying to create history, which he already did at Wimbledon, taking out a five-time Wimbledon champion. I mean, these are all unique times in our sport where we're seeing the top and the tail of uh, both ends of the events. So it's, that's what's fun to watch. You're bullish on Coco Golf. Well, you had to take your hat off to someone like Coco because uh, on the center court, not to fault her when she's closing the deal, it's, it's, you've seen people play good matches. It's tough to close the deal. What do you think about her technique, the way she plays? X's and O's, how she moves, her size. What do you think of her, if you were going to scout her? Yeah, well, she would, uh, they would make changes. There, there are changes that you would make to her game that would mature sooner, which will happen with the, between them and the coaches and so on and so forth. But the important thing is to have it between your years to be able to close out these big matches. You like her poise. You like her... Uh, Maturity far beyond her years. What do you think on the men's side? Is there a player that has caught your eye that, you know, this Daniil Medvedev seems to be, and he reminds me a lot of Miloslav Machir. Well, you see, the hard court season has come around, and we're all talking about Medvedev. The clay court season was around, and we were talking about theme. And uh, the grass court season came around, and we thought maybe it was going to be Sitsipas. And so I think all of them are still being kept in their place by the big three. Well, that's a fact. Looks, looks to me like Rafa has a very um, smooth ride to the final. I, I don't think there's any such thing because the com competitiveness from the early rounds are very strong. What could possibly happen? There's no such thing as an easy match. No, there isn't one. Now, what could possibly happen is playing five sets early in the week, and then that's the one that's going to hamper you later in the week. You think that it's going to be a wear and tear. The weather happens to be very manageable. Um, sensational. But that sensational weather. You don't get this really usually. <laughs> Not in August. No, usually it's like super yeah. hot. Yes. Yeah. Things are changing, I think. It seems like the weather's pushed a week or two. It's gorgeous, both for the player and the spectator, both. When you look around at this tournament, you, know, you played at Forest Hill, so I mean, does it blow your mind? Well, my claim to fame on the international circuit came here at the U.S. Open at Forest Hills. I, I beat Labor in the third round, uh, which was on CBS, the first ever Indian and American television. 
the following year I beat Borg. And I figured after I beat Lever and Borg, they decided to move to Clay. And uh, 75 to 77, they went to Clay. For our listeners, the tournament was on grass. And BJ Amitraj, one of the great grass court players, a great serve and volleyer, when they pushed it to Clay, that's when Connors really, I think. Well, Vilas won in 77. And then, of course, they moved it to the hardcore surface. So it's the only Grand Slam tennis event that has been played on three surfaces. And they played on green clay, by the way. Hard true. Hard true, exactly. Yes, yes. Um, but, I mean, to see this now, it must be, I mean, it, I mean it's, 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 beyond, it, it, it's beyond the imagination. Well, all the Grand Slams now, I mean, the U.S. Open is, the, what, $57 million in prize money across the board. Uh, the I heard they make a billion. I heard they make a billion. I, thought, I don't know what the numbers are, but, uh, but it's quite spectacular what they've done. I think the USTA has done a great job with this tournament. Um, I'm glad, unlike the golf event, the US Open, they don't move it around. This is the home this is of, it. The, of the US Open. This so is it. It's great. And Vijay Amitraj, by far the best dressed dignitary here <laughs> today, thank you. tomorrow, oh, and thank forever. You. <laughs> You are a very stylish cat. Let's go into our third set. This is the part of our show where we talk about your career. Now, you and your brothers, Anand and Ashok, came up in Chennai, is that right? That's right, hometown. Can you talk about how you came up in tennis? Well, uh, we were, all of us were a little bit different in a variety of ways. My older brother was the junior champion of India first, Anand. And uh, I started playing tennis. Hold on a second, Anand's older than you? Yes. For some reason I thought you were the oldest brother. I'm sorry, go on. It's just maturity. But Anand was, uh, was older than me, continues to be older than me in age. Uh, and I started playing tennis because I wasn't well as a child growing up. And so I was unhealthy, spent a lot of time in hospital, couldn't go to school well enough. My mother used to go sit in school, take notes, come and teach me in the hospital, beg the teachers to allow me to do the exams. What was it, you just weak? Yes, my lungs were too close together apparently when I was born, so I had a lot of asthma and lung problems, breathing only about 20, 30% capacity, that kind of thing. So eventually, tennis is what got me out of my health issues. And how'd you get so good? Were you practicing with like Ramanathan, Krishna? Do, were you no, no, I only played him in tournaments. I beat him two in the national championships of India. Ramanathan, Krishna, and the father of Ramesh Krishna, who actually had a terrific career. but. Uh, did you play international tournaments? Did you... Eventually. Uh, uh, three matches that really kind of talks about my success. One was before my 14th birthday. I won a large college tournament, which I wasn't allowed to play because I was in school. Eventually, they let me play, and I won the final in five sets at 13 and a half years old after losing the first two. And then I beat Krish in the final of the national championships. And then my brother and I won the doubles as well. So we, I played 19 sets over two days, which was important. And then my third big win was beating Labour here. And those are the three matches that I always talk about. But you had other, a lot of other big wins, yeah. but how do you go from you know, being champion of India to being a world-class player on the- Well, when I became the number one player in Asia, 1972, we had to go elsewhere to get better and play better players. Well, usually people go to Miami or they Yes, go to... in those days it was either Miami or Los Angeles. Today it's Barcelona probably. But Connors was living in LA, 
UCLA had a fantastic team. Arthur and Stan went to UCLA. Stan and Bobby Lutz went to USC. Did you go to LA? We went to LA, yes. You went to LA? Yes, 72. Who brokered that deal? How'd you get yourself to LA? Well, the USDA invited us to play tournaments in the US. So we came here and I played something like 12 or 14 tournaments and lost first round every week. Every week? Every week. Every week. Till the last one, I finally won one match. Who'd you beat? It came down to the final set, final point in the nine-point tiebreaker. 4-4 four, four in the four breaker. All. I chose to play the backhand court. The server was a guy by the name of Bob Hewitt. Bob Hewitt, famous And Bob, Bob. Hewitt's uh, an ace. And the net court judge called the let. The net court judge was 10-year-old Brad Gilbert. Brad Gilbert called a let on a Bob Hewitt serve at four all in the third set breaker. And Bob Hewitt gave him the worst stare I've ever seen anyone get. Eventually went on to serve a double fault. I won the match, my first ever win in the United States. Brad Gilbert never let me forget that story. That's an incredible story. You know, were you practicing at UCLA at the LA Country Club? Actually, I got very fortunate. Uh, the great late Pancho Gonzalez uh, started coaching me. It was wonderful. For our listeners, Pancho Gonzalez was a longtime teaching pro at the Caesars Palace. He had an operation out there. He was the director of tennis. Yeah. But he was on tour as America's number one player the great Gonzalez. And he had all you guys, Connors, all you guys coming out there. Yes, Connors was there. Uh, my brother, myself, Roscoe, and Jimmy went there for a, a few weeks of sessions with him. And then he liked what I did, and he worked with me a lot more. And that's how I beat Labor at the Open the following year. You improved. Yes, dramatically. Because by the time the ITF and the uh, Masters came around in 73, I was actually in the top 10. Now, how would you describe your professional career? Blessed and lucky. Yes, I worked hard, but so does everyone else. Uh, yes, I mean, did I have a bit of talent, probably. But to come out of where we came out of, under the circumstances that I came out of, uh, it, it literally had to be the hand of God. How would you describe the style of play, what you did well? Like, what, was, what, 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 what kind of player were you? Uh, I was fearless, which means I didn't push the ball at 30-40. You serve and volley every point. I served and volleyed. I attacked from the back. I, I won. I beat Connors on clay. I beat Labor on clay. Uh, so I've had good clay court wins as well. You know, I have to tell you, um, you were a fixture at the Newport, Rhode Island tournament. One or three times. I was a ball boy there. Oh, wow. And um, you really cast a big, you're a big personality. You're a beloved player. Um, how did you sort of rock that persona? Like the smooth VJ, or is it from being from, is it from the LA? Is it from, <laughs> what is it, man? You got like some Bollywood style not about quite, you? Not quite, not quite, not quite. It was, what you see is what you got. It was, the, it was an original, you know? We didn't pick it up anywhere or just, I hope I was able to, over the years, uh, pick up the best of all the cultures I was able to visit. A man of the people, a man around town. Who were your friends on tour? Who did you like to um, bang around with? I hung out with everyone. We played five sets in the daytime and beat each other's brains out and went to the movies at night, you know? Uh, I loved it. I went to parties with them. We, uh, uh, you know, traveled together. Of course, my brother and I went everyone and I traveled together for 20 years. Were you like good friends with 
Jimmy, Jimmy or... No, we still play golf now. Jimmy. Yes. You're like one of only Jimmy's close friends. Yeah, probably. Probably, huh? Probably. He's not very well liked. He's kind of grumpy, huh? Yeah, no, unless you get to know him. You got to really get to you know gotta him. You got to really get to know him, yes. Well, listen, after this interview, maybe tell him we're great guys, too. We yes. should talk with us. Yes. Um, do, do you feel like you were making a ton of money? Were you, like, were you very rich while you were playing tennis, or were you sort of paying the bills and kind of keeping it moving? Oh, gosh, no. I mean... We did very well. You did very well for for that time. For that time in tennis, you made a fortune. We did at that very time. well. I left India with eight dollars in my pocket. You literally had to win in the afternoon to be able to eat at night. So that's why I got thin very quickly. But I think when you look back at it, I always think, my goodness, you know, we were being paid to do something we really enjoyed. Seems like you guys made a lot less money, but had a lot more fun. Well, I think uh, fun. I think we enjoyed what we did. And uh, we worked hard, uh, like everyone else. Uh, at that time, the courts were quicker, the balls were lighter, the rackets were much more of an effort to play with than we do today. But at the end of the day, the competitive spirit and what you did at 30-40 didn't change. You got to play the hard. The game changed, You got to yes. play hard. Oh, gosh, yes. Absolutely. And you had to be on top of your game and get lucky in the big tournaments if you were going to take out uh, Jimmy or Bjorn. Um. You were a, a swashbuckling fellow. You have a great film credit uh, as VJ and Octopussy. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, that was a very interesting turn of events when I got picked off the center court at Wimbledon to do a screen test for the Bond picture. Well, you got to set that up for us. In 1980, was it 1981? 82, and uh, I was at Wimbledon. I won a couple of matches, and the producer of the Bond films and his daughter were there and they had apparently checked out over 500 actors for the role and suggested to me in a meeting, uh, uh, would you do a screen test? So I said to myself, you know, how many people can say they worked at Pinewood in the morning and played at Wimbledon in the afternoon? So I did. They loved it and they wanted to sign me for 14 weeks. And I was due to play Roscoe, Tanner. It, you supposed to play Roscoe Tanner at Wimbledon? At Wimbledon. So I ended up signing on for 14 weeks, but they were kind enough to let me do it three, four weeks at a time. So I didn't have to do it all together. So I could go, still go play my tournaments. So I did. After that, I did Star Trek for the voyage home. And to this day, I always joke about the fact that there's hardly anyone I have met who could potentially say, they did a Bond movie, a Star Trek movie, and played the center court at Wimbledon. Five hundred percent. Have a good laugh about that. VJ Amitraj. Now, VJ, um, you played alongside Roger Moore. Can you tell us any like good story about being on set with them? Well, we became best friends. He was a magnificent individual. He was one of the arguably the nicest guys I've ever met, especially when you're a superstar. And uh, the way he introduced himself to me, I'll never forget. I walked on set, they were already three months into shooting. I was on stage, standing in the background in the middle of a scene. And he suddenly saw me way across the stage and he walked right across, cut through the entire, the director had to go cut, cut, cut. Walked over to me and said, uh, my name is Moore, Roger Moore. I'm so glad you've accepted to work with us. And he was such a huge star. Did you get the chills or what? I did. And all my scenes were with him. And then we got to be best friends. 
And then, of course, he took over from Audrey Hepburn at UNICEF, and Kofi Annan appointed me a messenger of peace for the United Nations. So we ended up working together post our Bond film. Man, what a life you've had, VJ! Incredible! Thank you. Thank you. Now listen, I'm a contributor to Racket Magazine, and I interviewed your brother for an oral history of the Huggy Bear. First of all, we gotta explain what the Huggy Bear was. A really great fun, Huggy Bear tournament run by the wonderful late Teddy Forsman and his group. And uh, it was one of those events before the Open that was played out at private homes in Long Island. For our listeners, you can read about this in the magazine, but there's like almost like a secret underbelly of tennis fun. And the Huggy Bear was really one of these events. The week before the US Open, it was a doubles tournament out in the Hamptons run by these heavy, heavy hitters. Yes, and uh, you played in three homes, parties every night, uh, big prize money. Well, the money was the biggest, biggest. right? And, and a, there was gambling, and there was a Calcutta. There was a Calcutta where you could buy teams. And uh, the owners also made money if the teams won. And then the teams were handicapped and the teams were given points called BISCs. Based on the quality of the players, and the team, Teddy Forsman, the late Teddy Forsman, bisked the players. And uh, it was a spectacular week of, of fun, and tennis, and money, and, and parties, and now, now, would it be fair to say you made more money at the Huggy than you did in your pro career? Oh, no, no, not quite. But Ken Rosewall and Fred Stolle, that was their biggest ever prize money check in their lives. I heard Stolle made 800 grand with stock that Tady said, listen, you can either take the prize money or you can take stock. There you go. That made sense. It was during the WCT days we used to do that. World Championship Tennis, run by the great Lamar Hunt and Al Hill Jr. And uh, it was the first half of the year with the finals in Dallas at Reunion Arena. That was magic. another it big It was magic. Thing. The trophy was like a million dollars, right? There was like a diamond and gold trophy. Beautiful. Did you, you didn't win that. No, I didn't. I got the finals three times. Um, but I understand that you were the MC of yes. the Huggy Bear Calcutta. How'd you know that? You did your homework. My man. No one ever talked about the Huggy Bear, but now that it's defunct, some people are starting to spill the beans. There was no cameras allowed, right. no media allowed. You and Stolly were in charge of the Calcutta. That's right, that's right. And I heard that you could milk people for the money. You got them to pay. What's well, the number charity. one? Partially so for charity. So it's, right, it's the right way to do it, you know? Yeah. The players got paid and the money, rest of it went to charity. So it was a, it was a very good partnership. If you want to hear more about the Huggy Bear and get the most informative, progressive, and stylish magazine in tennis, pick up Racket Magazine. It's a stunning coffee table quarterly, and this quarter you can read the oral history of the Huggy Bear that I just discussed with VJ. It's called Barbarians at the Net and features interviews with VJ's brother Anand, Paul Anacone, Spencer Segura, and Tony Forsman. You can order it and subscribe at racketmag.com. Or you can get it free when you join our Patreon page. That's right. As part of Amitraj October, Racket has kindly offered the latest issue free to any new patrons. Just sign up on our Patreon page at any level, and you not only get the latest issue of Racket, you also get to listen to early release episodes like Stan Smith and exclusive release episodes like my interviews with Fabrice Santoro, and Justin Gimmelstop. Beyond that, 
There's a ton of great additional perks. And best of all, you get to help us keep providing you with insight and stories from the most interesting voices in tennis. You can find it all at patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash underreviewtennis. We appreciate all of your support. Now let's get back to my talk with the one and only Vijay Amitraj. All right, let's move into our fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. We do not do a deep dive. I just say something and you say what comes into your mind. Okay. Favorite city? Um, London. Favorite tournament? Wimbledon. Best Indian food in New York? Um, Symphony Spice on 47th Street. You serious? That's the real thing? Very good. Rod Laver? Genius. Ken Rosewall? Genius. Bjorn Borg? Genius. John McEnroe? Great champion. Vitas Gerolaitis? The nicest guy you could meet. Your toughest opponent? McEnroe. Really? Yeah, my game suited him. I beat him twice, but my game suited him. What do you mean? I could play really well and lose one-on-one. You could play really well and lose one-on-one? Yeah. John McEnroe? Yes. Special. One of my best wins, quality of tennis-wise, was beating McEnroe in Cincinnati. The year he only lost two matches. The final of the French and to me in Cincinnati. 1984. 84. Arguably the greatest season there ever was in tennis. By far. And I was one of the wins. That's a good win, VJ. It's unbelievable. This is our fifth and final set. We call this King of the Courts. If you were the king of tennis and you could make any kind of change with just a swing of the racket, what would you do? You know, it's not any different from playing a tough opponent who hits a good shot. When someone hits a good shot, you have to respect it. You play the shot back so it gets you back in position to be able to compete in the point. The analogy I'm drawing is similarly, today we are faced with so many other sports that compete with us, which wasn't the case 30 years ago. You have sports like Kabaddi that are going to make the Olympics in 2024. Okay, Uh, so I think it's very important for us to see the global picture of what tennis is in the light of what we are being challenged by. And we have to be realistic about the economy of various countries because we are arguably the second most global sport in the world after football. So it's important for us to understand the fact that we have to deal with economies of different countries at the same time, just as we deal with rankings of the guys who rank the top 10 and guys who rank 200, we have to be careful as to how we deal with it. What's required in Stockholm might not be required in Sydney. What's required in Tokyo might not be required in Tashkent. So we have to play these games very carefully looking at the global picture. Do you think, I think what you're saying is, is that the sport needs to be more nimble? Completely. And make sure that you're respecting the competition that's out there when you go to major brands that want to come on board. Why will I spend that much with you when I'm getting more for my money elsewhere? It's not just because we're the greatest. No, we got to compete. Is the sport in trouble? Uh, the sport is at a crossroad. Not in trouble, it's at a crossroad. 
VJ Amitraj, a final eight club here at the US Open. Beat pretty much every player of any significance in modern history. The first Indian professional athlete in the history of the nation. Listening to you talk about tennis, one of the great things you could do at the US Open, that's for sure. Thank you very much, Greg. That was beautiful. Uh, you are released. Thank you. Thank you very much, Greg. Really enjoyed it. My man. Great job. Show us the inside of that jacket. Film this. Oh, man. That's too good. Who made that for you? One of my endorsements. It's the 50th celebration of Wimbledon. To see the inside of that jacket, head to our website or follow us on social media. Huge thank you to Vijay Amitraj. We'd like to thank Sergio Tacchini, the brand new official apparel sponsor of Under Review. And yes, you heard that right. Tacchini is back on the scene. And we cannot think of a more iconic tennis brand that we'd rather partner with. The brand has outfitted Sabatini and Sampras, Hingis and Gerolitis, Novak won his first majors in them, and Johnny Mack won all of his. We wore the logo through the open, and everyone had something to say. Recounting the old times, excited about the new, nearly everyone in tennis has a Takini story, and we want to hear yours. Drop us a line at info at underreviewtennis.com. Tell us your Takini story, and check out what they're doing at sergiotakini.com, and catch them at Instagram at sergiotakiniofficial. Man, it sounds so nice to say this. Welcome aboard, Sergio Takini. Big thank you to our Patreon subscribers, Chris Potter, James Kai, Jeff Monty, and Adrian Bartos. If you want to join the Under Review family, get cool perks, and get in on Amitrage October, head on over to patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash underreviewtennis. Really appreciate all of your support. Thank you to Lou Scher and Michael Karsh. Thank you to all the folks at the U.S. Open. And thank you to all for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. And tell your friends. We can be found wherever you get your podcasts. We also love hearing from you. So if you have a topic you want explored or a person you want to hear from, please let us know. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Underreviewtennis is our Instagram and Facebook. And to catch some clips from some of our interviews, check out our YouTube page. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released. <laughs>